0: It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. We have a better picture of the state's budget surplus and it's slightly less than originally predicted. Why the difference and where will all that money go? We'll take a look. Plus, the Minnesota State Fair has a new CEO for the first time in nearly 30 years. We'll hear from her later this hour. New state funding is supposed to ensure that Medicaid recipients can see the dentist, but there's more obstacles in the way. We'll find out why. Food can really open the door for some interesting conversations. We'll hear about a unique project bringing people together across cultural divides. Dance marathons have a uniquely Minnesota history. You probably don't know that, but we'll explore that in our latest Minnesota Now and Then series. The Song of the Day and the Minnesota Music
1: Minute are also on tap, and all of it comes your way right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. More than 40 million people, hoping to get a chunk of their student debt wiped away, are waiting to learn where the U.S. Supreme Court comes down on legal challenges to President Biden's student debt relief plan. The High Court hears arguments in two cases this week. One involves a lawsuit filed by two students who are either eligible for only part or none of the relief. The other suit was filed by six Republican led states. Biden's plan would cancel $10,000 in federal student loan debt for those making less than $125,000 per year or households that bring in less than a quarter million in annual income. Pell Grant recipients could get as much as $20,000 knocked off their debt. Florida has taken control of a special district that for more than 50 years has been controlled by Walt Disney World. NPR's Greg Allen reports Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that ends Disney's self-governing status in Florida.
2: Florida's governor and lawmakers created the special district at Disney's request in 1967 as the company was building its massive theme park near Orlando. It gave the company many of the powers of a municipal government, allowing it to issue bonds and to build roads and other infrastructure with little oversight from the state. Last year, Disney's CEO angered DeSantis when he said he'd worked to overturn a controversial law critics called Don't Say Gay. At the governor's request, lawmakers produced a bill that ends Disney's special status. DeSantis signed it at a fire station on the Disney property.
3: So Disney loses self-governing status The state of Florida is the new sheriff in town.
2: DeSantis has named a five-member board that will now take over control of the district. Greg Allen, NPR News.
1: The United Nations is trying to raise more than $4 billion for humanitarian efforts in Yemen. The United States is giving $444 million and urging Gulf states involved in the war there to follow suit. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The U.N. Secretary General says humanitarian needs worldwide are at the highest they have ever been, but Antonio Guterres says there are some hopeful signs in Yemen as fighting has eased. Secretary of State Antony Blinken echoes that.
3: Our funding, together with the relative calm created by the U.N. brokered Truce, prevented 2.2 million Yemenis from falling into emergency levels of food insecurity, where people's lives depend on urgent action. And it prevented tens of thousands of others from slipping into famine-level conditions.
1: Both Blinken and the UN Secretary-General are urging the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, who control much of Yemen, to lift restrictions on female aid workers. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's the latest senior U.S. official to visit war-torn Ukraine, She went to Kyiv today and pledged more measures to isolate Russia, whose invasion is now in its second year. President Biden went to the war zone a week ago. From Washington, this is NPR News. The British prime minister and the head of the European Union's executive branch have announced what they called a decisive breakthrough. Villamark's reports the two have overseen a new agreement on trade arrangements in Northern Ireland.
3: Alongside the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak marked an end to two years of sometimes tortuous negotiations between the EU and UK. He said a new agreement would ensure there was no longer the kind of invisible border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK that had proven so politically explosive among some British lawmakers.
1: That's Villamark's reporting. SpaceX says it will try again Thursday to launch a Dragon capsule to the International Space Station. This morning's attempted launch with a crew of four was halted two minutes before liftoff at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Brendan Byrne with Member Station WMFE has details.
0: The early morning launch was called off after teams at SpaceX identified an issue with the system that ignites the nine engines of the Falcon 9 rocket. Once launched, member of the Crew-6 mission, two NASA astronauts, a Russian cosmonaut, and an astronaut from the United Arab Emirates will spend up to six months on the ISS conducting research and experiments. They'll relieve the four people of the Crew-5 mission, which arrived last October. That team is set to return to Earth in about a week. NASA works with SpaceX to launch astronauts to the station. This will be the seventh time SpaceX has launched NASA astronauts into orbit, and ninth
2: overall it's sent people to space since 2020. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando.
1: U.S. stocks trading higher, the NASDAQ is up nearly 1% or more than 100 points at 11,501. This is NPR.
2: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression
0: around Minnesota right now. Skies are cloudy. It's either raining or snowing, depending upon where you are. With winter storm warnings for northeastern Minnesota and winter weather advisories for parts of central Minnesota. Highest today, mid-30s. At noon in downtown Duluth, it's snowing in 28. It's raining in Lake Elmo and 32. And outside Sags Hardware in Wheaton, Minnesota, it's foggy in 30. I'm Kathy Worzer with Minnesota News Headlines. The weather is one of the top stories. Freezing rain fell across a wide swath of Minnesota this morning causing crashes and slippery sidewalks. NPR meteorologist Sven Sundgaard says rising temperatures will bring an end to the ice, but the rain will continue.
4: The rain should wrap up for the Twin Cities in southeastern Minnesota late this afternoon and snow showers lingering for the North Shore probably until about 8, 9, 10 p.m. tonight. but done for everybody here before midnight Monday night.
0: Sven says central Minnesota will see substantial rainfall, not unlike the storm on Valentine's Day.
4: We could get up to three quarters of an inch of rain in the Twin Cities, plain old rain. This would be our third significant rainfall event of this winter.
0: And he says falling temperatures will also likely turn much of the standing water to ice overnight tonight. The 2023 version of the Minnesota State Fair is months away, and when the gates open at the end of August, there will be someone new running the fair. The State Fair announced today that longtime State Fair Deputy General Manager, Renee Alexander, will be the new CEO of the State Fair. She'll take over from Jerry Hammer, who is retiring. Alexander is a Minnesota native who earned a degree in business communications from the University of Wisconsin-River Falls. We'll talk to her later in the hour. our top story Minnesota state lawmakers are getting their first look at a revised financial forecast that will guide them for the next couple of months as they make final decisions on a new state budget the forecast was released this morning and for the first time in two decades it includes inflation in spending estimates and that has left that big projected state surplus a little flat to help explain it all as our political editor Mike Mulcahy hey welcome hey thanks for having me Kathy Okay, so as I say, it's, it's nearly flat. What impact did inflation have on the big budget surplus that was projected to be, what, $17.6 billion?
2: Right. Um, it's a little complicated, so stick with me. The surplus announced today is just under $17.5 billion. Now, but without inflation factored in on the spending side, it would have been bigger, about $18.9 billion. And if you really wanna max out on the numbers here and do apples to apples, go back and uh, to that original forecast in December, factor in inflation again, it would have been about 16 billion. So it's complicated, but the surplus is up a little bit. Stable is the word used by Minnesota management and budget. They say income taxes, corporate tax collections have been coming in better than expected, but that is offset a bit by inflation. They say outlook for the economy is a bit better with just a slight recession predicted for next year. And they say that revenue still looks strong through the next few years. Really.
0: I want to just kind of focus on inflation here for just a moment. If I could, Mike, why did lawmakers decide to include that in the forecasts again? I mean, they, they used to factor it in a number of years ago, and then they dropped the idea.
2: Mm -hmm. It all goes back to about 20 years ago remember back then the state was facing a big deficit it was right after 9-11 and so they decided by taking inflation out of these forecasts it made spending look a little smaller and that gap was easier to fill and i should say there's a philosophical uh, angle to it too republicans argued back then and they still argue now that including inflation in the spending projections basically puts government spending on autopilot, and it assumes that spending from one budget will always continue into the future. Democrats say that by not including inflation, you're just being unrealistic and it tends to paper over problems with budgets. They say it's responsible budgeting to include inflation, and Democrats, as you know, are in charge at the Capitol this year, so they finally had the votes to change it back and put inflation back in, and that's what they did.
0: So the bottom line is there's still a pile of money that can be used for, for a number of different things, right? What are Democrats, as you say, who control the House and Senate and, of course, the, the governorship, what are they all saying about how we move forward from here to the end of the session?
2: Well, generally speaking, uh, the Democrats and the governor agree on some of the big spending areas. They, uh, the governor wants to spend more on schools. He wants to spend more on child care paid family and medical leave program and some targeted tax breaks for families. In general, the DFL legislative majority seem to agree with those priorities, but with this much money on the table, even some slight disagreements can mean some big amounts. For example, there's already a bill moving in committees at the Capitol that would spend even more than the governor has proposed on K-12 schools. And his increase there is about $5 billion. So it's a lot of money. The governor has also proposed some direct checks to people within some income limits. He calls them walls checks. He's got about $4 billion targeted there. It's still not quite clear what the legislature wants to do there. So that'll be a big uh, part of the debate. And so I think you, you get the sense, Kathy, that there's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of uh, details to be worked out, even with one party in control of the House, Senate, and the governor's office.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And what are uh,
2: Republicans saying? Well, they've been pretty clear from the beginning that they think a lot of this money should go to tax cuts. Last year when Republicans controlled the state Senate, they had negotiated a total elimination of the tax on social security income and a, a rate cut for income taxes. We all know the session ended last year before those things were actually passed. So Republicans may have given up much of their leverage. They, they kind of expected voters would give them a bigger majority this year. And that's not what happened when people actually voted last November. So, uh, it's unclear what kind of impact Republicans can have on this budget debate. They, they may have some influence in the debate over a public works construction bill. That's where Democrats will need their votes. If those projects are paid for by selling bonds, the number to remember, I think is 34 Democrats to 33 Republicans in the state Senate. So stay tuned on, on what happens there.
0: Should be interesting. All right. Mike Mulcahy, thanks so much. You bet. Mike is our political editor here at NPR News. You can tune in Friday at noon for the Return of Politics Friday on NPR News. Mike's going to interview the governor about the state's budget surplus and his top priorities for the rest of the legislative session. our Minnesota Music Minute. We have a brand new song for you. This is Abby Wolf with At Bat from her new EP released just Friday. Abby says this project explores themes of climate anxiety, joyful interconnectedness, and collective potential. I'll be talking with her Wednesday, so be sure to tune in. This is a noontime show, so usually around this time of the day, people are thinking about eating. So we're going to talk about food right now. We love the tastes, the aromas, and textures of food, right? And we love how it brings families together around the table and friends together to unwind after work. Our next guests love all that about food, but they also appreciate how it opens the door to storytelling about people and cultures. Shay Sandifer and Julie Burton are the creators of Stories Behind the Menu. It's an annual series of four dinners that begins in February with Black History Month and ends in December during the holidays. And I'm so pleased that Shay and Julie are on the line. Welcome to Minnesota Now.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having us, Kathy.
0: On your website, you write that stories behind the menu is a culinary journey with a celebratory heart. And you bring folks together for a meal that includes cuisine and conversation and community building. So. Shay, how does that work in real life? What happens?
4: Well, uh, thanks again for having us. Um, We have a beautiful uh, sit-down dinner that seats up to 75 people uh, quarterly, and Julie and I create um, a cultural scene that reflects um, racial health and equity through storytelling and food. So we bring in local chefs and let them create a delicious meal that we focus on through a book or documentary that reflects on how all the food in America has been brought in, either through enslavement or through um, immigration. So why are we not connecting? And so Julie and I we thought it was a great idea to come together and sit with others and discuss what we are going through, the trauma, and how we can heal. Julie,
0: um, you had your first dinner of the year this February, right? Who was the chef? What did you eat? What, what happened?
6: So actually, this is our second year. Um, so we we had our uh, we had Chef Matteo Maccabee this past February, um, kicking off Black History Month, and um, he he prepared his amazing New Orleans style cuisine, um, and we had a sold out crowd, 75 people. We had mute live music, a saxophone player, um, and it was it was really. Um, wonderful to have people come together and learn about Mateo and his history and his family's history and his love of food food, and also in in bringing that perspective in that leads to conversations um, around, like Shea said, racial health and equity and amongst the people that are attending, we have conversation starters on the table that are, you know, go go kind of deep, right, into into talking about um, issues of, of, you know, what Minneapolis has experienced and um, a lot of the divisiveness and how we can heal um, and come together as a community.
0: Give us a sense of the questions that you ask and these conversation starters at the table.
6: Ah. Uh, what does a healthy community look like to you? What does it feel like to you? Um, have you ever been the victim of racism, anti-Semitism, bigotry? Um, and then, and then light, right? And then, what's your favorite? What's your favorite family food tradition? How do you how do you celebrate food in your in your family? What are your some you know some of your favorite memories from? From your grandmother, um, so we mm-hmm. so we we try to mix in right the the kind of the heavy okay we, we have to talk about this stuff also with with the happy and the and the celebratory um, mood and and because some of this stuff is difficult but we mm-hmm. we really want to add joy um, and happiness to to the evening and to the conversations. And Shay, I am
0: betting that each chef, of course, has stories, right, about what they're putting on the table.
4: Yes. Yes, it's, um, I love the storytelling part. That was the part that, you know, I really wanted to build on when bringing this to the table is about what is the history from your family? What does rice mean to you? What does okra mean to you? What does chicken, you know, there's certain families, as Mateo explained, like shrimp in their household and his mother's household, There was 10 of them. So like. That was like two times a year that they would get that. So it's all about the history and, like Julie said, the light behind it, about coming together and eating together and teaching each other about our history and our ancestry and how we can learn from it, right? Education is freedom, and it takes that ignorance out that is displayed every day that we see and instead brings light to the table to understand each other. Speaking of
0: stories, there, you do have a really great story about how you met Sean Sherman, Shay, at this award ceremony that you were at and is, and how it kind of led to the development of stories behind the menu. You want to tell folks?
4: Yes. Yeah, so Sean Sherman and I were um, both nominated for Entrepreneur of the Year for uh, Neighborhood Development Center to uh, a little over two years ago, so I had the be I had the pleasure of being in the same category as him, but he beat me, and so we had a beautiful conversation though about who we were, um, what our businesses did, and like how we got to this place. And so he invited me to the restaurant the next day, so I of course took him up on his offer and went there with a the girlfriend. And he said took time out of his busy Friday night to explain every dish that we ordered, brought some extra dishes, talked about the Lakota family um, and his heritage. And then it was like the aha moment. And I said, Mm -hmm. this is how I'm, Julie, we need to start Stories Behind the Menu, so.
0: I love the story. So, okay, for folks who are now, their interest is peaked and their their stomachs might be grumbling as well because of the the talk of food here, (laughs) do you all plan to take stories behind the menu to places outside the Twin Cities? I could see this really being pretty popular elsewhere. Julie, what do you think?
6: That's the goal, absolutely.
4: Kathy. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> <That is> definitely <laughs> the goal. Yes,
6: yes. Um, and we we would love to take this nationwide for sure, and um, you know, small town USA, um, and and really bring these different perspectives um, into different communities, and also to highlight chefs in local communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, you know, yes, we love Sean Sherman. Um, And, you know, we're big fans. And we also love the the chefs that are doing great work here and that maybe nobody or people don't know of um, as well that that we want to highlight. So yes, the goal is to take this nationwide um, and to spread this message of healing communities through food um, across the country. So you getting the sense that
0: once folks push themselves away from the table and they walk out the door that they have been changed? Shay, what do you think of that?
4: Yes, absolutely. So we, I wouldn't say we trick them, but we definitely throw a little, a little wrench in their plans of what they think is going to happen. And what I mean by that, Kathy, is they don't sit by who they come with. So um, and I felt like that is something that needed to happen, that when people are sitting by someone new, then that starts a conversation there. Right. It's very easy and you get comfortable sitting by people you know. Well, that's the whole problem. Right. We're too comfortable. So. Let's get a little uncomfortable, have a conversation with someone, and create new friendships. Are they necessarily going to be your best friend? No, but at least you learned about something new and someone new. And I, I've seen people come back with them like, you know what, you were right. I, I met a new friend that I actually have more in common with, and now we're coming back to these events. So I think they live with their stomachs full, they leave with their hearts full, and their minds full.
0: And you know, sometimes if you don't know the person very well, you can be more honest. Have you noticed that? Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah.
4: there's, yeah. there's the bias sometimes leaves and the, and the, you know, the judgment leaves. So you're curious. So you're listening with an open mind and, you know, instead of just putting, you know, your stamp of approval on what your friends say. And I think that's what people have enjoyed is they're sitting by people that they probably would have never sat by, you know, that they walk by. They go in restaurants, sit right by them, but don't speak to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Say, so, Julie, okay, so the, you mentioned the first dinner that was held uh, this this past month, right? Um, the Correct. second dinner's yeah. coming up, that would be what, in May? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes.
6: In May, yes. And we have Melissa Silva from El Burrito Mercondo, Um, and she is going to be bringing her Mexican uh, food and traditions to modern well um, and we are so excited mouths are watering of course um, for the food that she'll bring and and just she her family and her story is so wonderful um, and we're just excited to share to share that history with with the attendees and um And there's still tickets available. So storiesbehindthemenu.com, and uh, yeah, we're we're really excited. And then we have two more chefs coming um, for the rest of the year as well.
0: I think uh, Yia Vang, who I adore. We have oh yeah, we have
6: Yia Vang.
1: Hello. And Heather
6: Jans. Yes, Yia will be amazing, and Heather. so it's, uh, we're really, really excited. It's a great opportunity. We think, Shay and I have talked about this, um, that people come to us and we're, we're doing a lot of work together at Modern Well um, on a regular basis around promoting racial health and equity and bringing people together. But some people you know, come to us and say, well, I, I, I wanna get out of my bubble. I wanna meet other people that are not like me or have different backgrounds, but I just don't know how to do it. And so we've created a very, a fun way, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, non-intimidating way for people to come together and enjoy a, a great meal, um, meet some wonderful people, experience a, a great local chef, um, and, and do their part in, um, in bringing people together that you might not, like Shay said, normally meet.
0: I think it's been uh, great fun talking with you both. Really, you've done such good work with this. What, a, what an interesting concept, and I do hope you take it national. Yeah.
4: Thank so, you. Good, best of
0: luck Thank to you. both of you.
4: Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you. We so appreciate much, it. Kathy.
6: Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for being here. Shay Sandiford, Julie Burton run the dinner series Stories Behind the Menu. You can grab a seat at the next meal, as you just heard, by visiting storiesbehindthemenu.co.
1: Programming supported by Carlson Capital Management, an integrated wealth management firm with one key responsibility. Serving as financial stewards, helping clients use their wealth to accomplish their goals. Employee-owned and Minnesota-based. Connect with a fiduciary advisor at carlsoncap.com. Member support powers news and music free of paywalls for nearly one million Minnesotans. You create a shared space for the celebration of independent and local music on The Current. You fund live local broadcasts and performances from around the world on your
2: classical NPR. You support 24-7 coverage through NPR News.
1: And you create a more connected Minnesota.
2: Invest in radio for all. Become a
3: member today at nprnews.org. 1226,
0: John Wanamaker standing by with a news update. John?
3: Kathy, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments today over President Biden's student debt relief plan. Under the plan, millions of borrowers could see their loans wiped away or reduced. Republican-appointed judges have kept the Democratic president's plan from going into effect. The court is hearing challenges by two students and by six Republican-led states, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. It's been uh, unusual weather here in Minnesota and around the country for the last couple of days. Parts of the Southern Plains are counting the injured and surveying the damage after tornadoes and other powerful storms swept through. Police in Norman, Oklahoma, responded last night to storm damage. Officials there said there were 12 confirmed weather-related injuries, none though considered critical. In California, blizzard warnings began going into effect in the Sierra Nevada as more rounds of rain and snow entered the state from the north and moved to the south. Parts of the northeast that have seen little snow this winter are under a winter storm warning and some of Michigan's residents faced a fifth consecutive day without power following last week's ice storm. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill that gives him control of Walt Disney World's self-governing district, punishing the company over its opposition to the so-called don't-say-gay law. Under the bill, DeSantis, a Republican will appoint a five-member board to oversee the government services that the Disney district provides in its sprawling theme park properties in Florida. The governor signed the legislation on Monday. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says her first visit to Ukraine underscores Washington's commitment to continuing its economic support for the country. Yellen arrived in the Ukrainian capital on Monday and met with top officials and President Volodymyr Zelensky. Visiting, the, She also visited a damaged school and met Ukrainian landmine removal experts. Yellen said the U.S. has provided around $50 billion in security, economic, and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine since the start of the war with Russia. The U.S. official repeated several times that Washington will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. After a tough week last week, stocks up across the board in uh, early trading. The markets were up, uh, the Dow up about four-tenths of a percent, the S&P up one-half of one percent, and the NASDAQ up nine-tenths of one percent. This is NPR News.
0: Thank you, John. The Minnesota State Fair has a new CEO. Renee Alexander, the organization's longtime deputy general manager, will take the reins this spring after retiring CEO Jerry Hammer steps down. Renee will be the first female CEO in State Fair history. She's on the line right now. Renee, congratulations.
7: Thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, why is it? What is it about the State Fair where folks start at a young age and they work their way up to leadership? I mean, Jerry, your predecessor started in the greenhouse as a teenager and you started as an intern back in 1989. What kept you at the fair all these years?
7: Uh, well, and there was there was a time that I was not at the fair, actually, Kathy. I was here for five years. I was, um, an, like you mentioned, I was an intern. And uh, after that first summer, I mean, it's there is something magical about being a part of something that is so much bigger than yourself and something that is, you know, it's, it's a class reunion, a family reunion, and a block party all mixed into one. So um, I was offered an opportunity to work full time after that. That first summer, um, I left for about eleven years. Did some other things, and uh, when I was offered the opportunity to come back, I said, "I'm not leaving this time." It it does, as you as you mentioned it, it gets in our in our blood. It's something that we we love to be a part of.
0: You are the person best known for probably booking the annual series of grandstand shows, which of course is one of the biggest attractions at the fair. That's not an easy job. What kind of work goes into booking the acts?
7: Uh, you know that's it. That's a year round process. You know, even on these cold, icy, rainy days where I was uh, corresponding this morning with agents working on fill, filling those last few blocks, so uh, spots that we have for this year. So it's, it's a year-round process. It's like so much of what we do at the fair. It's about relationships. It's creating relationships with, um, with agents, with artists, uh, and it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's an adrenaline rush when you get a good one, though.
0: <laughs> now, is it true that you almost booked Prince?
7: I I I came as close as I, I could. <laughs> I, I'll never know for we'll we'll never know for sure, will we? <laughs> no, maybe not. It was it okay. was certainly certainly not for lack of trying, but that was that was something I would have loved to have had. it been so wonderful to have Prince play here, but unfortunately well, did not come to pass. Well shoot. What
0: was your favorite moment at the grandstand?
7: Oh gosh you know i would have to say in more recent years and it's, it's rare that i meet the artist that is not my role um, but i did have the opportunity to m- meet and actually sit and chat with aretha franklin so mm. to be in the presence of such an incredible icon was uh that's that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for sure
0: so uh in your current role uh you lead marketing for the fair which is another it's a difficult job what have you learned from that job during over the years here when communication and marketing really has just changed so dramatically
7: uh t- t- changed dramatically you're absolutely right kathy i think the the thing that i've learned um, the most important thing is transparency just to be upfront uh, about what what the issues are you may be dealing with and craft a message that is as clear and concise as possible Um and you know and we from a marketing perspective, we've got a lot of, a a lot of fun. I mean, we have a great job, um, to be able to, to, we sell fun. So, uh, the marketing piece of it is really where we get to have fun. The the messaging piece that can be a little more challenging, but, um, as we all know, social media has played a huge role in, in our, all of our, all of our lives.
0: Right. Um, and you've made strides to make the fair more inclusive. How will you continue that work?
7: That's, that's, uh, the work never ends. I mean, that is, that is uh, something that we're always working on and, and increasing what our, uh, the, the people that we can reach. I think it's continuing to have conversations with, with people in our community and you know, just doing a lot of outreach and, and bringing more people into the fair that we possibly can. So it's, we're, we're here for everybody and we want everybody to have a seat at the table.
0: Jerry Hammer held that job for almost thirty years twenty seven to be specific, and that's a whole lot of history to follow as you know, Renee. what tricks of the trade yes. have you learned from him?
7: Oh gosh, Jerry is always cool under pressure that's uh that is one thing I've certainly learned from him, and you know the the he and I both have the same passion for the fair. So we, we, our styles may be a little different, but at the end of the day, we're both um, most interested in doing what is best for this institution and keeping the traditions alive of the Minnesota State Fair.
0: You are a Minnesota girl. Where'd you grow up?
7: Uh, I grew up in the North Metro. I, I grew up, I went to high school at Coon Rapids, uh, just north of the metro here. And I went to college in River Falls, Wisconsin. Good for you. Go Falcons. <laughs> um, yes, does well, it, and, does it... and I, I went to school with your colleague, Tim Nelson. He was also so,
0: There you go. <laughs> I'm wondering, <laughs> you, you, does it help to be a Minnesota native to run the state fair? I would think it would.
7: Uh, you know, I think we're just having experience in the fair industry is really important and having, you know, all I think so many Minnesotans have such pride in their fair and, and we look at it as staff here as we are the caretakers. So I think having we, we also have that pride and that that just feeling of um, just a love for for the institution. So it, it certainly helps. I think it it would be a challenge for an outsider to come in um, and understand our traditions, at, at, you know, at a rapid pace.
0: Okay, so this is kind of I put you on the spot here, but um, oh boy, when you it's okay when you arrive at the fair, um, <laughs> that first day, what's the first place you go to? What's the first thing you do? And, and you're steeped in the oh. fair, but I mean, what, what are the what's the magic for you? Where do you go?
7: There is so much magic and so many traditions that I think we all have as a staff. Like the first thing that I do on that opening morning is I go to the main gate because I love to see uh, people coming in for the first time. They're so excited. Uh, I love, you know, we have politicians that are at the gates. We have some of our vendors there with food, all of the local media there. So just the excitement and that, that is my that is my morning. My, my first opening day routine is showing up at the front gate to watch, watch us this Bring everybody in for that first morning.
0: Okay. And then get what mini donuts and coffee?
7: Uh, coffee is definitely in the mix, <laughs> no question. Good. <laughs> but i I'm, I'm more of a morning I'm a more of a morning footlong girl than I am a than I am a mini donut girl. In the morning at least. <laughs>
0: gotcha. I understand. <laughs> Say when do you start your new job?
7: Uh, Jerry and I will be working out the timeline for the, for the transition here in the next few weeks. So, um, not until later spring. So he's, he's sticking around. And as you know, Jerry is a a neighborhood, neighborhood guy, so he won't be far away, um, from us. The, the, the fair is very steeped into his traditions as well as, as well as mine and so many others. So, uh, we'll, we'll work through that. He and I have worked closely together for years and, and we'll continue through this transition. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard.
0: Well, Renee Alexander, uh, congratulations and best of luck.
7: Thank you so much, Kathy. Look forward to seeing you during the fair.
0: You will see me. Thank you, Renee. Renee Alexander is the incoming CEO of the Minnesota State Fair. Well, we were talking to Renee Alexander, the new uh, CEO of the Minnesota State Fair. She says, of course, she starts her day with coffee uh, when she's right out there at the gates for that very first day for the fair. And uh, many Minnesotans have started their day today screaming, yelling as their car slid on ice or they were sliding around on the ice. It just was a mess this morning. As a matter of fact, Duluth, National Weather Service, says that this wintry, the dreaded wintry mix of freezing rain, sleet, and snow is happening. And it should trans over to mostly transition over to mostly snow later this afternoon. Uh, Northland saw a couple of tenths of an inch of ice have accumulated, so uh, travel is also awful in northeastern Minnesota uh, around the Twin Cities earlier this morning. So many outs, crashes, and rollovers too. Folks just uh, were surprised by the ice that fell, that formed on the road after all that rain fell, turning to ice. It's going to get a little bit better here this afternoon. We'll have details coming up.
2: Programming is supported by Minnesota Public Radio's educational sponsors. Our work together provides public radio service to communities throughout the region. One of the sponsors we'd like to thank is Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. I'm Paul Hutner, and on Climate Cast, I track how the climate is changing and how our response is changing, too.
0: I'm really making decisions that are going to impact the future, and I think more people are thinking
4: that way. If we had this conversation six years ago, I'd say that there were quite a few skeptics out there. But there's very few skeptics now. If
3: you're not doing something positive, you are part of the problem.
2: Climate Science News and Solutions, Thursdays on All Things Considered and wherever you get your podcasts. It's
0: 1242. The Minnesota legislature is back in session today after being off because of last week's big snow. Here's an update on an issue that surfaced during the 2021 session. At the end of that session... The Minnesota legislature approved higher reimbursements to make sure more medical assistance enrollees saw the dentist. But as Katherine Richard reports,
8: it's made little difference. Kim Sundby was a foster parent to 55 kids over a decade and a half. Usually when the county put a child into her care, she tried to get them a dental appointment. Often it was their first. They're going, my mouth hurts, I can't chew, I can't do this. And then we expect them to focus and do well and
6: school, and different things like that while their mouth is just on fire.
8: But Sunvi, who lives in Litchfield, says getting her foster kids in to see a dentist is hard. It's because they're on medical assistance, or Medicaid, as it's more commonly known outside Minnesota, and they don't have a relationship with a dentist. You call and call and
6: call and ask people if they are have any um, new patient
8: availability And the answer often is no. On her husband's employer insurance plan, Sunfi can get in to see the dentist in a few days. It's a long-standing and vexing problem for Minnesota. People on medical assistance are more likely to be behind on their dental care, but they have the hardest time seeing a dentist. Care that's tied to preventing other long-term health problems, including cardiovascular issues. In 2021, the legislature tried to fix that problem. They passed a bill that nearly doubled the amount of money M.A. pays dentists for each appointment. But more money hasn't moved the needle. DFL Representative Tina Liebling chairs the Health Finance and Policy Committee. She says it's an intractable problem.
1: It is a problem with a lot of different components. It's not just the money."
8: Labor shortages, transportation, and geography are all in the mix. State data provides a snapshot of the problem. In 53 counties, there are two or fewer dental clinics that accept MA enrollees managed by the state. After a year of higher reimbursement rates, about 2,200 dentists will see the state's MA enrollees, only 46 more than before the state made changes. In Olmstead County, Kathy Burns navigates this maze of roadblocks daily. She's the county's program manager for aging and care coordination, and her staff works with about 3,000 MA enrollees. We had hoped with um, that changing this past year that
0: maybe we would see um, either more clinics pop up or more openings occur, or we would be
8: able to have more success in getting individuals dental care, but... It still continues to be a challenge. Burns says there are still only two or three offices in her county that take MA patients consistently, not nearly enough to meet demand. And even then, getting an appointment isn't guaranteed. They're often booked out for months. Burns' colleague Heather Robinson says MA patients face additional challenges seeing the dentist, like needing a translator or lacking transportation.
7: Say you need a ride to the dentist and you don't have a car. If you miss your appointment too many times in a row, you can't go to that dentist again for a year.
8: The president of the Minnesota Dental Association, Tim Holland, is a practicing dentist in Owatonna. He says no-shows are a concern for private dentists because they can't make up that lost revenue.
2: You know, things happen. We certainly understand that. But if it's a repeated issue, then we have to talk about that and address it and the potential that you might not be a patient here any longer is is real, you know.
8: Meanwhile, Holland says a shortage of dental assistants and hygienists make it hard for private dentists to staff their offices to meet demand, a shortage made worse by the pandemic. Gita Worcester is UCare's executive president of public affairs and chief growth officer. In 2021, less than 40 percent of its MA population saw the dentist at least once, far short of the legislature's new goals of 55 percent. She says UCare reimburses its dentists more than what's required by the state, but it's still not on par with much higher commercial plan reimbursements. She says the system deters dentists from participating. But if you can fill your practice, with commercial members where the reimbursement is higher or Medicare or private pay, how many slots do you give to the Medicaid population? And that deed change isn't going to easily happen. Worcester says UCARE is trying to expand access in other ways, mobile dental clinics and a special appointment hotline to name a few, but it's still a hard dial to move. Catherine Richard, NPR News, Rochester.
0: Here's a question for you. Have you ever participated in a walkathon to raise money for a charity? You probably have. It's a big event, it's usually a lot of fun. Have you heard about danceathons? Now, these were wildly popular in the 1920s and 30s, where dancers would be on their feet all day and all night, with the last couple standing declared the winners. Here's what you might not know. Dance-a-thons have roots in the state of Minnesota. Local journalist and history buff Katie Thornton looked into the history of these marathon dances and found a rather grim backstory. She joins us right now with the details as part of our Minnesota Now and Then series. Welcome back. Thank you so much, Kathy. Great to be here. How exactly did these dance marathons start?
5: Yeah, that is a great question, because they started in a sort of informal, somewhat organic way, and they really sort of changed over time. But they started actually in in 1923. There was a woman in New York. Her name was Alma Cummings. And seemingly just for fun, she danced for 27 hours straight. She had a variety of dance partners who she who she sort of exhausted over the course of many hours. Um, and and she just wanted to set a record in a way. The context of this is that in the 1920s, there was this sort of obsession with, with setting records. You know, the modern Olympics had started just a handful of decades before. So there was this big emphasis on record setting. And this was also the 1920s, where for some people, there was uh, a, a lot of optimism and there was a lot of sort of... Uh, a lot of engineering accomplishments, a lot of these remarkable feats of human ingenuity. And there was sort of a tandem obsession with figuring out the limits of the human body. People were sitting on flagpoles for hours on end. They were walking across the entire country. So this is sort of a part of that vein.
0: Mm, Okay. Uh, You also wrote that during the Great Depression, these shows weren't just for fun and for seeing how far you could go. They were actually a matter of survival for some of the dancers.
5: Yes, absolutely. So these dance marathons, which sort of started as this early curiosity, were very quick to be sort of capitalized upon and in many ways exploited. So you had this woman in 1923 set this record for dancing for 24 hours straight. I believe within a week that record was broken something like nine times across the country. So people were really interested in this, which if you're a promoter means you might start thinking about how you can make money off of it. And so at different dance halls and other locations really across the country, including here in Minnesota, throughout the 1920s, there started to be these sort of formalized dance marathons where there would be prizes to the couple who could dance for the longest. And in the great depression, that ended up sort of taking a turn for the the grim in a lot of ways dance marathons during the great depression were a way that people could guarantee to have a roof over their head they were a way to guarantee that you would be fed you know these these marathon these marathons provided food multiple times throughout the day and if you won you could win very large prizes you know that sometimes rivaled an annual salary of what someone might make on a farm
0: but of course, there were these health risks, right? I mean, we have to be honest about that. Uh, not only during the 1920s, but in the 1930s. I mean, you see photographs of of the had medics, you know, that were there and nurses and that kind of thing. It did, It looked pretty unpleasant.
5: Yes, they did. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, the 27 hours that were danced by Alma Cummings end up becoming dwarfed by the dancing that happens in these later years. People were dancing for days and weeks and even months on end. Of course, there were some rule changes that enabled that to be possible. But something that was pretty common was that these dance marathons would take place over the course of weeks and you could sleep for 15 minutes of every hour. Um, There were cots provided often on site. There were, as you said, nurses and medics on hand to rub people's feet, to sort of treat illnesses. Um, And it wasn't necessarily very safe. It also wasn't, it got to a point where it was sort of glorified walking in a lot of ways. They would do these dance sprints where they really had to dance together. But um, for the most part, you were just sort of walking and you just had to be in motion to be considered dancing. For the partner dances, also, there were rules like, you, your partner could sleep if you held them up such that their knees didn't touch the floor. You would be disqualified oh. if their knees touched the floor. Oh. All daily activities, you know, reading the paper, shaving, uh, brushing your teeth, had to take place sort of on, a, on the dance floor. And so this was a way that people sort of drew people in, but it was quite voyeuristic. It became quite voyeuristic and exploitative.
0: Okay, so I've been to Lakewood Cemetery, and I noticed that there is a gentleman who's buried there, and I wanted to know more about him, and I bet you know
5: who this is. Um, He apparently was a dance marathoner. Yes, this is true, and this is actually how I first learned about dance marathons. It's, of course, a national phenomenon, but it does have this really strong Minnesota connection. So, as you mentioned, there is a grave at Lakewood Cemetery, which which I saw. You know, I, I grew up sort of, Lakewood Cemetery was the big park that we would go to. You know, I loved going to the cemetery and just reading the headstones. I went on to work there. And this headstone in section 11 reads, uh, Calum de Villiers, world champion marathon dancer, 3,780 continuous hours, mm. which truly begs some questions. And this is actually how I ended up getting interested in, in marathon dancing. You know, How is it possible for somebody to dance for over five months? And this is how I sort of set out down this road of, of learning about this long and complicated history. Well,
0: what'd you find out about this gentleman?
5: Yes, yeah, so he is from Lanesboro. His family ran a candy shop in Lanesboro. His older brother was a musician, um, but he started getting in on the dance marathon circuit in the 1920s when he was working in a restaurant washing dishes. Um, and he sort of took the Minnesota circuit by storm there was record of him you know, blowing the judges away in Brainerd and he ended up getting a little bit on the national circuit. Uh, he danced this really, really remarkable dance marathon that he's memorialized on his grave in Massachusetts outside of Boston in the 1930s and 1933. And that's where he danced. He and his partner, his dance partner, uh, Vonnie Kuczynski, danced for over five months. Um, The dance marathon took place outside of Boston, couldn't take place in Boston proper because the city of Boston had actually banned these dance marathons after somebody died after the marathon. So it took place in the suburbs of Boston um, and it was truly a a remarkable feat and together they won the $1,000 prize. You mentioned
0: that the dance marathons were pretty voyeuristic and, and they were not terribly healthy, obviously, and clearly Boston wasn't in, in excited about it. Did other governments jump in and ban these things? Is that, is that why the dance marathons kind of went by the wayside after a certain point?
5: You know, they definitely had their detractors, I think, for very good reasons. It's interesting because there were a lot of sort of moral complaints and, and obviously these were quite voyeuristic, quite exploitative. Um, but a lot of the complaints that I read about came from, oh, you know, they're, it's too crowded. You know, people are coming out at all hours to see the dance marathon and there's these crowds in our neighborhood, which is interesting that that's, that was often the argument against them rather than the well-being of, of the dancers themselves. <laughs> um, but they sort of fell out of fashion more so you know as as the depression went on people didn't necessarily have the the money to be going out and seeing these dancers every night you know there would be a small admission fee which would ultimately end up paying the the award money to the dancers um and especially when world war ii rolled around it was just really not a priority to to come out and see folks you know dancing quote unquote uh, around around a dance hall floor for for hours and hours on end
0: Sure, sure. So did these events turn into like the walkathons of today in a sense?
5: They did. They really sort of dropped out after World War II and they were sort of forgotten, at least in popular culture, for a while. Of course, people still had memories of these things, but they they went from being this sort of fun thing to try out in the 1920s to something, to something much more grim and much more sad. And in 1969, um, the film, they shoot horses, don't they? Came out with Jane Fonda, and that ended up sort of bringing it back into people's cultural memory. It's a very sad story, um, mm-hmm. and so that really sort of reiterated that these were these were very sort of heavy, complicated things. Um, these dance marathons. But about four years later, it was, um, I believe, yeah, Penn State, Penn State University. Uh, students at Penn State University ended up having sort of like a, a more moderated and um, sanitized version of a dance marathon where the contest was capped at 30 hours so no one could dance for more than 30 hours and they raised a couple of thousands of dollars um, for a charity. Mm-hmm. And so sort of, let's see, this was in the 1970s. And this became sort of more and more common until in the 1990s, dance marathons, especially at Colleges and universities were really a popular fundraiser, and that sort of eventually morphed into the more accessible uh, walkabouts that we see really often today.
0: There you go. The, the stuff you learn and the fact that you were—you <laughs> just your your curiosity was triggered by a gravestone. I love yeah. that.
5: So so you. often, I mean, you can always find you read a you read an epitaph, and there's always a story to it.
0: There absolutely is. Everybody's got a story, Katie, and you know that. Thank you so much. This was great fun. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much for talking today, Kathy. Good to talk with you.
0: That was Minneapolis-based journalist and historian Katie Thornton. You can find more of her work at com, And you can find a photograph of that amazing headstone that we were talking about on our website, mprnews.org. Of course, the story around the region here has been the weather. Gosh, it seems like just one storm after the next, after the next. It was not an easy go here on Twin Cities Highways earlier this morning. Right now, we do have some drizzle. It's 32 degrees, still some residual ice out there. And there's some snow now at the Duluth Harbor, where it's 28 degrees earlier. Duluth also had some ice fog in Fergus, where it's 30. It's raining in Red Wing, where it's 36 degrees. It's been kind of a difficult day with the ice and the snow. Winter storm warnings are posted for northeastern Minnesota for several inches of snow, especially along the north shore of Lake Superior. Winter weather advisories are posted for portions of central Minnesota through today. So again, if you're out and about, you're probably noticing it's a little slick. Walking is really so difficult, especially in parts of the Twin Cities where there's standing water over the ice on sidewalks. So just be careful. Thanks for listening to Minnesota Now here on NPR News. Special thanks to True Stone Financial Credit Union. They're dedicated to giving back to the community since 1939. Full service banking is available at 23 locations and online at truestone.org. TruStone is an equal housing opportunity lender insured by NCUA. Right now in the Twin Cities with the uh, rain that we're seeing right now, it's still 32, as I mentioned, 33 in downtown St. Paul. The rain is gonna to change to sleet at times. That's not attractive here in the Twin Cities. The high may be 35 by the end of the day. We'll see what happens there. And then temperatures drop like a rock. About 19 should be the overnight low. That's gonna cause a refreeze. So everything you see that's now wet is gonna be ice by tomorrow morning. So tomorrow morning's commute will also be pretty dicey. Tomorrow's high 35, 30% chance of snow tomorrow afternoon, a 50% chance for snow tomorrow night Wednesday morning, chance for snow. Wednesday's high 32. It's one o'clock.